Hey, it's Guy Raz here, host of How I Built This, with the recommendation for another podcast for you to check out, namely How I Built This. Every week, I talk to the people behind some of the most inspiring companies and brands in the world with stories of incredible persistence, grit, and insight. You can find How I Built This on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. If you know anything about Vermont, it's probably these few things. It's pretty small, it's really cold, and they drink a lot of beer there. Vermont has more breweries per capita than any place on planet Earth, and and a lot of it's awfully good. That's Bill McKibben, one of the Green Mountain State's favorite adopted sons. You might know him from his super cheerful book, The End of Nature, or from his exploits trying to shut down the Keystone XL pipeline, or from his many uplifting TV appearances, like this one from Real Time with Bill Maher. Oceans, forests have been damaged to the point where they're no longer absorbing carbon as quickly as they used to. So we're right on the edge. It's the moment to be moving fast. See, what I tell you, dude's uplifting. Anyway, Vermont has served as McKibben's home base for more than a decade. And during his time in the North Country, he noticed that his little state was different. Vermont is indeed a kind of strange place. It's the most rural state in the Union, the fewest people living in a city. And it's white as typing paper. So in uh, demographic terms say it should be a kind of Trumpish place. And indeed, New Hampshire immediately to the east and upstate New York immediately to the west pretty much are. To say that there's an independent spirit in Vermont is a dramatic understatement. This is the state where Bernie Sanders built his progressive outsider identity. And before it became a state in 1791, Vermont operated as an independent republic for 14 years. And that's why Vermont is the perfect setting for McKibben's new novel about organized civil dissent. Radio Free Vermont, A Fable of Resistance, is McKibben's 17th book and his first work of fiction. It's the story of uh, an unlikely set of rebels led by a septuagenarian former radio host in Vermont who end up leading the charge to secede from the Union and go our own way here in Vermont. As the subtitle suggests, though, the story has a moral. What it really is is a kind of love letter, not only to Vermont, uh, but a love letter to the resistance that I've been a part of, in a sense, for the last decade or two in the climate fight, and that resistance that's that's burgeoned, blossomed so much this past year. I'm Lauren Ober, and this is The Big Listen from WAMU and NPR. Each week on The Big Listen, we showcase some of the most interesting conversations happening in podcast land. And maybe, just maybe, we help you find some new things to listen to. For decades, Bill McKibben has been a tireless environmental activist. He's the founder of 350.org, the world's largest climate change campaign. And he helped organize the Worldwide People's Climate March in 2014. He's also been arrested a bunch of times while participating in civil disobedience around environmental issues. Most of McKibben's work is about very serious problems with very serious consequences. But recently, he said he needed a break. I've been on the road so much doing this um, climate organizing. It's been my kind of volunteer life for the last decade. And I mean, I've been all over the planet and some years, you know, away more nights than I've been home that I I, I get very homesick. And so this was a way to um, think about Vermont when I wasn't here. And I was just amusing myself. I figured this was the year to publish it, though. 
Radio Free Vermont is definitely an amusing little book. It's a lighthearted story of a 70-something radio host named Vern Barkley, who has to go underground after an act of civil disobedience makes him a wanted man. Along with his ragtag crew, including a millennial hacker and a military vet slash Olympic gold medalist, Vern pushes the idea of an independent Republic of Vermont any way he can, including with a podcast. Particularly for a certain kind of activism, maybe, there's something deeply important about the power of the human voice. Since you're activists, in a way, are telling stories about what the future could be like, you have to build the picture in your brain. It's a clever plot device, but the podcast hook is also rooted in McKibben's longtime love of audio. It's also a, um, a in, in some ways, a great appreciation of, of radio and of the human voice and its power, which to me is uh, extremely, extremely important. We'll hear more from McKibben in a bit about the role of the human voice in activism. But now we're going to take a quick trip to Vermont's next-door neighbor, New Hampshire. Like many states, New Hampshire has been grappling with how to provide power to its citizens cheaply and responsibly. And one way to do that is to buy hydropower from the Canadian province of Quebec, But as our pals from New Hampshire Public Radio's Outside In found out, it's not that simple. The power that would come down this line is from big hydroelectric facilities, rivers that have been dammed and diverted and are now being run through turbines. It's being pitched as clean, renewable energy, energy to replace all of the fossil fuel and nuclear power plants that are retiring all over New England. So people are split down the middle on it. Sam Evans-Brown and Hannah McCarthy are the hosts of Outside In's special reporting series called Powerline. In it, they dig into not just the history and environmental concerns of hydropower, but also the emotional and cultural impact of the utility on thousands of indigenous people whose land has been destroyed by the dams. Sam and Hannah, welcome to The Big Listen. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Lauren. All right, so why don't you start with a little bit of an overview of this series, What is Powerline About?, Okay, so it started because this has been like the longest running environmental issue in New Hampshire for for some time now is this question of whether or not to build this big power line. And it's kind of the the classic not in my backyard fight. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we cover that in a way that's going to be interesting to folks all over the country? And so started digging into the history of the source of the power, which is this great big uh, Quebecois uh, hydroelectric utility, and they have just this fascinating history, and we really just fell down the rabbit hole. Right. So basically, the the, the deal is that there there are plans afoot to um, for parts of New England to receive power from um, hydro power generated in the very very north of the province of Quebec in Canada. Yeah. And to be clear, we already get about 10 percent of our electricity from there's an existing power line. Um, but there's this these plans that are afoot to basically double the amount uh, that's coming into New England. And and that was the 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 sort of news peg that got mm-hmm. us excited about the story. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand hydropower or at least I didn't before listening. Well, I similarly didn't really understand hydropower. I mean, most of the time I was having Sam just try to explain electrons to me. (laughs) Um, But, I mean, very in very layman's terms, the way that it works is that they are 
damming these massive, very, very powerful rivers up north, and they are diverting this huge flow into these turbines, which are then generating massive amounts of electricity. And those are going through these generating stations and eventually being, you know, amped up or down and then brought along the line to us. Um, And you know, does seem kind of like an afterthought in the United States. But in Canada, it's something like, what, Sam, 95 percent, 99 percent of their electricity comes from hydropower. Mm -hmm. So it's really, really cheap for them, and they pretty much depend on it. Like most Americans I know, Montreal's English speakers didn't really give much thought about what makes their lights turn on. The fact that you're asking me the question, I'm thinking that it's something that I should have thought about. I, I... To be honest with you, I don't know what hydropower is. To them, Hydro-Quebec is the name at the top of their electric bill, like the water company or the sewer bill. They don't give it much thought. Uh, One thing I like about them is that in the winter, if you don't pay them, they don't cut your hydro off. Right? Because you might die, so they leave it on. Woo! I sound stupid. <laughs> no, 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 no. But surely Pete, you don't think about it, right? No, I, I You know, I think a lot of Americans would be surprised to know that their power is is ostensibly coming from another country and at at somewhat of a you know, at, at some great cost. We don't consider oftentimes where our power comes from unless, you know, we are we are near a place that generates it. And uh, I mean, why do you think that is that this is this sort of invisible thing that we just sort of take for granted. But as you mentioned, there is this human cost. Well, I mean, I think it's just exactly that. It's that we don't see it. If you think about the Northern Pass project. That's the one in New Hampshire that you guys have been reporting on. Exactly. So the argument against Northern Pass, and there's a big fight against it, is that you're going to have these power lines that are coming through the White Mountains, through people's backyards. You've got this not in my backyard movement. Um, you know, I think that a lot of the people who are protesting this form of uh power transportation wouldn't have even considered it unless they were going to be faced with the visual of seeing this thing uh, right behind them, sort of spoiling their view. Mm-hmm. So I think it really comes down to, you know, we even spoke to people in Quebec and Montreal who didn't or hadn't really considered what was going on with the indigenous people in their own country. Right. Because many of these people have not been that far north. These are in really remote communities. And while there has been, you know, some protest movement with First Nations people that has brought that fight south. And so there were moments in this movement when you had the United States interested. What it takes is these people getting into the face of other people or these companies getting into your face and showing you how it might impact you. Right, right. And and neither of you are Native, no, right. no, indeed not. And that was, I mean, the, I think if you listen through to the fourth episode, um, the degree to which we were just a couple of white kids like bumbling around up there comes through very clearly. We had we had sort of an interaction um, in a car ride that that made it really clear how little we understood about the lay of the land up there. Mm-hmm. How so? So we had a really hard time getting in touch with um, with the chief of this Inu community called Equanichit. I got word that they were expecting us, that they knew we were coming, but I never had any contact information. And and I would call the community center and, and get people who didn't speak English. And, and my French is really terrible. So over the phone, it was a, a hot mess. Um, so we were basically just like, okay, they know we're coming. And we showed up and the chief was was extremely welcoming. And he wanted to take us up to see this, this native-owned helicopter company that they've created as part of their dealing with Hydro-Quebec. Mm-hmm. We started to drive up the road 
we got to the security gate. We had had submitted our, our passport information ahead of time, but um, when we got to the gate, they they uh, said we hadn't given them enough advance notice, and they turned us around. and mm. And the chief was just absolutely outraged. Yeah, he he immediately started to try to get people from Hydro Quebec on the phone. So we're sitting outside of this gate, and an hour goes by, and the chief is just negotiating with various people. And at one point, he is threatening to blockade the road to the dam, which he has done in the past. So this is a very real threat because he feels that this is, you know, something that they have done before and they're doing it again. And how dare they do this and deny him access to his own land, especially when he's got guests. And I think the word humiliation was used quite a bit. Mm -hmm. But finally, Hydra says, sorry, the journalists can't go through. You Mm -hmm. can't go through. Uh, And then we turn around and we start driving. And then it's slowly revealed that This particular chief and the community didn't realize that we had conducted interviews with Hydro-Quebec before we came to see them. Mm -hmm. But the the long and short of it was um, he got really mad at us and and was just saying the reason they're not letting us through is because they know who you are and they know they know the the story that you want to tell. And um, and, you know, I didn't I if I had known that you were going to talk to them, I would never have signed up to, to take an interview with you. And, you know, it, it what came through, I think, is that is that the reason that he that they got so angry wasn't necessarily that they were genuinely angry with us. It was just it was just that this was yet another brick in the wall of of the the types of treatment that they feel like they've had over their entire lives. I mean, this this chief, uh, um, Jean-Charles Pietachot, he had attended a residential school um, and if if you have heard about the residential schools in Canada, one of the things you might have heard is that Canada paid reparations to all of its indigenous people who who went to these schools because of the abuses that they suffered at these schools. Mm-hmm. So, so it, I mean, this whole interaction that we had at the security gate was just tied up in this in this like deep long history that we had zero background in and right. were were not prepared to confront. We, I mean, we were just like, we're going to go tour a dam, yeah. right? Right, exactly. What do you hope that that people get from your reporting on this particular story? Want to take a stab at that first? Sure, yeah. <laughs> I can tell you because Sam has been so inside this world for so long, and I was coming at it from a comparatively outsider's perspective. What happened for me was that I went from having pretty simple ideas about, you know, what I thought. Uh, clean energy meant or green energy meant or efficiency was or how people were affected by things. And after we did all of this reporting and we saw both sides of the story and really weighed them both, what I came away with was a really nuanced, much more confusing, (laughs) much more complex takeaway where you really, it's hard to say hard and fast what is right and wrong in a situation like this, there's always a cost. And, you know, it comes down to, I think, the way that you communicate with people and the way that voices are heard. And and we did hear from a lot of listeners who said something similar, like, I had a strict kind of idea about these things. And now that I've listened to your story, I mean, one person wrote in and said, I'm having my firm beliefs challenged. And I didn't expect that to happen. Right, right. So if nothing else, we should just think a little bit more about where our power comes from when we turn the lights on in our house. 
Yeah, which which as a takeaway, uh, <laughs> one one sort of like friend and uh, and interview source that I've had in the past referred that called that takeaway cosmically disappointing. <laughs> um, but you know, such is the world, guys. Time to just like deal with it. Sam Evans Brown and Hannah McCarthy are the hosts of this special series, Powerline, from New Hampshire Public Radio's Outside In. To learn more about their show, hit up biglisten.org. After we recorded this interview, the Trump administration approved a presidential permit to allow the Northern Pass transmission line to cross the country's international border. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that our pal from the top of the show, environmentalist Bill McKibben, might have a thing or two to say about a power line that cuts through boreal forest and indigenous land. But his recent book, Radio Free Vermont, A Fable of Resistance, isn't exactly an environmental alarm bell like some of his other work. McKibben's novel is about a small band of patriots who are fighting to maintain Vermont's independent way of life. One weapon at their disposal, a podcast. McKibben says he got the inspiration from a small local radio station. WDEV, uh, which I wrote a long profile of for Harper's, is maybe the last really independent radio station of its kind in the country. It's uh, I, that's how to describe it. I mean, it carries uh, the Red Sox and it has a kind of conservative guy on in the morning doing uh, call-ins. And it's also the only commercial radio station in America that carries Amy Goodman and Democracy Now!, you know, it has the covers live all the stock car races in Vermont, but it also um, has its own bluegrass band, the Radio Rangers, on Saturday morning. Uh, it's everything that a radio station should be. In McKibben's book, the main character uses pirate radio and podcasting as an act of resistance. Vern, the protagonist, is trying to spread his radical message of an independent Vermont and uses earbuds to do it. The podcast also helps Vern broadcast his somewhat unorthodox resistance tactics, which I can't tell you about without spoiling the book's best bits. Sorry. One of the things I actually wanted to do with this novel was give rise a little bit to some creative thinking about what different kinds of resistance might look like. McKibben has been interested in nonviolent resistance since his early days as a writer. You know, the longer I've done it, the more I've come to understand how little we really know about resistance. If you want to study warfare, you can go off to West Point or the National War College or a hundred other places, and every country has one. But this sort of nonviolent resistance that people like Gandhi started pioneering eh, just about a century ago is still very much in the, in the world of make it up as you go along. We're going to take a quick break right now, but when we come back, we'll talk with Emmy award-winning writer, producer, and comedian Larry Wilmore about making it in Hollywood as a minority. I'll be honest with you. The color that Hollywood cares most about is green, okay? And if you're a person of color or a woman or many of these things, many times you're just invisible. It's not that somebody has something against you. You're just invisible. But first, we'll hop back in our time machines with reporter Leon Nafok and head back to the tricky dick days of the Watergate era to see what similarities there might be to today. Nixon and Trump can both be sort of described as paranoid and angry and, and, and vengeful, you know, obsessive and, and sort of inclined towards conspiratorial thinking. Uh, and I think that is probably the starting point for a lot of the parallels that one can draw. That's coming up in a sec. Stick around. This is NPR.
Lauren. This is Jenica from Ottawa, the capital of Canada. I'm out walking my dog, Spooky, and I like Query with Cameron Esposito, who I was introduced to on your show. This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. She's a comedian, but in this podcast, she's doing uh, one-on-one conversations with what she calls queer luminaries. Would you introduce yourself however you want to, however feels right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Hello, Uh, my name is Jenny Owen Youngs, and I am a Sagittarius on the cusp of Scorpio, (laughs) and I am a musician and a human organism. (laughs) Yes, you are. I hope that you enjoy it, and thank you for all you do. Hey, pals, welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Over, and shout out to my new best friend, Spooky the Dog, and human companion, Jenica, for giving us a bell. If you or your dog want to recommend a favorite podcast, the pod line number is 202-885-POD1. We'd love to hear what you or your pup are listening to. If you've been following American politics lately, you no doubt have heard comparisons between Donald Trump and Richard Nixon. They're hard to avoid, especially as the Trump administration is under investigation for colluding with Russia. At the heart of both Watergate and the Russia investigation is election tampering. That's what makes Slate's podcast Slow Burn so timely. It's a show that looks back on the Watergate scandal through the eyes of the people who lived it, including former congressional staffer Curtis Prince, former Senate investigator Scott Armstrong, and veteran journalist Leslie Stahl, who recalled that in the early days of the Watergate affair, the media somewhat surprisingly didn't take it very seriously. As I covered the arraignments and so forth, as this thing moved forward, I would run breathlessly from a courtroom with a tidbit that I thought was stunning. And Woodward was sort of egging me on. I'd be out of breath because I had to run down three flights of stairs and I had my high heels on and I'd get to the microphone and it would sound like someone was trying to kill me. And I'd deliver my little tidbit. And years later, I found out none of them were ever put on the air. They just went into a spool in the Washington Bureau. The break-in did receive coverage. It's just that it tended to be muted or deferential to the administration or just kind of misguided. Reporter Leon Nafok is the host of Slow Burn. Leon, welcome to The Big Listen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I uh, should ask what your sort of primary um, reporting beat has been. Yeah, you know, it's been sort of all over the place. Um, I... Uh, came to Slate uh, a couple of years back and, and started covering criminal justice. So that was my focus. Um, and then with the new administration, I, I made uh, the Department of Justice my focus. I think part of the reason the show felt like a natural thing to try is that it, it covers some of the same ground that I that I was uh, reporting on uh, with my DOJ stuff. Mm. I don't think it helps me uh, tremendously in terms of being able to you know break stories uh, about the present, but. Um, it certainly has helped me think about the president in a in a in a new way. Mm-hmm. How so? Um, so I, I think uh, over the past year or so, a lot of us at Slate have been sort of like questioning our instincts about what counts as important or consequential news. You know, every time there's some new development, whether it's uh, you know something crazy that Trump did or something the special counsel 
did, you know, new indictments or whatever, uh, we all ask ourselves, like, is this it? You know, is this going to be the thing that sets, you know, the wheels of history in motion? And I think looking to the past and to Watergate specifically, you know, and really sort of getting immersed in the timeline uh, has provided me with some perspective that I didn't have before. And like going back and identifying the turning points as, as well as, you know, what turned out to be red herrings, you know, the bits of news that seemed super important but turned out not to be. I don't know. I, I, I want to think that it has sort of trained my eyes a little bit and, and made me better at processing the news today. Right, right. You know, along those lines, one thing um, I didn't know about was that almost no one cared about the break-in at the Watergate Hotel when it was first reported. Leslie Stahl was 30 years old at the time of the Watergate break-in. She had just started working at the Washington Bureau of CBS News. She had been hired as part of a push to bring more women to the network. When she arrived, Stahl found the newsroom to be almost empty because most of the other reporters and producers were out covering the campaign. Today, Stahl was famous for her work on 60 Minutes. But back in 72, she was just a rookie. And that was exactly why, the day after the break-in, her bosses asked her to look into it. Nobody thought it was anything of consequence. But it was the Democratic Party headquarters. And, you know, we really ought to send someone. So let's send the new girl. You know, she's, she's green as can be, but let's give her a shot. Stahl remembers seeing just two other reporters in the courtroom on the day that burglars were arraigned. It was a preview of the shrug that the Watergate story would inspire in the press throughout that summer and fall. I'm wondering why you think that was at the time when, you know, people were sort of real blasé about this. Yeah, so there were there were a few reasons that I came up with when, in trying to answer that question, like why did it take so long to get people to care? One was that it sort of seemed like a like a curiosity, like it was it was it was referred to as the the Watergate caper on the news, right? <laughs> and I think compared to some of the other stuff that was happening in the country at the time, particularly with foreign affairs, where you know Nixon had just gone to China and he'd gone to Russia, and he just he had, he had been working so hard to kind of position himself as this. Uh, larger-than-life statesman, you know, he was, like, even trying not to campaign during the 72 election. Like, he was mm-hmm. trying to not present himself as a candidate. He was, he was the president. And so I think for a lot of people, it was impossible to think that the president, you know, this, this, this world historical figure could have been involved in such grubby, you know, schemes. Mm-hmm. I also think that uh, there was just no precedent for for criminality in the White House of this sort. You know, I think people's minds just didn't go there. It was easier to think that, the, you know, these guys, these five burglars and their two handlers were sort of overzealous freelancers or whatever, right. uh, which is how they were portrayed by the White House, than, than to think that our actual, you know, the actual most powerful people in our government, you know, had a hand in it. Mm-hmm. You talked to Dick Cavett, the, the talk yep. show host, who who told you that he kind of missed the Watergate days. What do you think it was about the the scandal that made it seem sort of fun or fun. almost sort of, yeah, <laughs> like cinematic in a way that, you know, that, oh, we're, we're watching some kind of entertainment unfold as opposed to something that would be, that would really impact the country. Right. I mean, I think, I think people held both things in their heads at once. Mm-hmm. I think by the time the Senate Watergate hearings began in, in 1973, there was an awareness of, of 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 the stakes and disruption that this was that this was causing in 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 the country's history. But at the same time, like these were fun stories to keep track of, and 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 the characters who people got to know during that summer as they watched the hearings. You know, wh- whether it was Senator Sam Irvin with his, you know, 
excitable eyebrows and jowls, <laughs> you know, and then his uh, country twang or, you know, uh, or whether it was Howard Baker, the, the, the top ranking senator on the committee, uh, who kept asking everybody, uh, what did the president know and when did he know it? Um, there was just there was just a lot of plot to follow along with. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the sort of theatrical nature of it. Um, I mean, I, you can see it happening, right? When you're explaining that, um, you know, when when Wright Patman, the head of the, the House Banking Committee, is interviewing empty chairs. Congressman Wright Patman made another attempt today to investigate the Watergate affair. He got nowhere. Here's Curtis Prince again. The witnesses all told through their lawyers, told Patman they weren't coming. So Patman still went on with the hearing and he set up four empty chairs at the witness table. Patman asked the empty chairs questions for an hour. A photograph of Patman lecturing the empty chairs appeared in multiple newspapers the day after. The Washington Post even ran it above the fold. It's a really fantastic photograph. You can see the nameplates for Stans, for Mitchell, right there in the foreground. And up above, you see Wright Patman in the middle of saying something. As he spoke, Patman was full of theatrical indignation. He called the absence of the four witnesses a sad spectacle, a massive cover-up. President Nixon is responsible for those four empty chairs. He's responsible for their secrecy, for the elimination of the people's right to know. Their decision not to appear, Patman said, was an insult to every single American who believes in free, open elections. It is an arrogant act, an amazing act for those who are supposed to be seeking the votes of the American people. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine watching that on C-SPAN today? Yeah, I mean, it's great theater, you know. It's uh, the guy The guy knew how to how to make a spectacle. Right. So how how do you, what, what parallels are you drawing um, to sort of the, you know, our contemporary time now in the Trump administration? So, you know, we've been trying to kind of go easy on tracing the parallels explicitly in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, you know, but they're definitely there. And I, and I think the show is written sort of with the expectation that people will make those connections themselves. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're really, I mean, they're substantive parallels, I think, you know, starting with the, with the nature of the crime uh, under investigation. You know, in both cases, we have election meddling, right? Just, you know, a, a candidate cheating to win. That's the, that's the question with, with the collusion charges against Trump. And it was the question with, with Nixon and the burglary and everything else that the Nixon campaign did uh, in the run-up to the, to the 72 election. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of these parallels sort of stem from a, a basic similarity between the two principles, right? Like mm-hmm. Nixon and Trump can both be sort of described as, you know, paranoid and angry and, and, and vengeful, you know, obsessive and, and sort of inclined towards conspiratorial thinking. And I think that is probably the starting point for a lot of the parallels. Right, right. And both were, you know, sort of campaigned on their outsider status, right? Nixon was not some sort of East Coast elite. That's right. And, yeah. And, yeah, 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 exactly. The anger, the, the anger that they that they stoked in order to get elected, I think it was very, very similar. And mm-hmm. there's, a, there's an amazing set of pieces by uh, Gail Sheehy uh, in New York Magazine from uh, 1973. Uh, they will come up in a future episode of Slow Burn. But, um, you know, she went to a to a bar in Astoria, Queens, uh, to hang out with with Nixon supporters during the hearings. And just the way she characterizes them, you know, these guys who uh, just don't want to hear it, you know, and they think it's the communists and the anarchists who are trying to take down their guy uh, and are trying to, you know, 
reverse the the results of this of the election, you know, because they don't, they can't stand an outsider coming in and taking away their power. Uh, it's just, I mean, you could you could change the proper nouns and and, and right. run the same story today. Leon Nafok is the host of Slow Burn from Slate. To find out more about the show, check out biglisten.org. Well, it's time for another quick break. But when we come back, we'll chat with comedian and producer Larry Wilmore about being a Hollywood mover and shaker. I have my dirty little fingers in every little thing in Hollywood. Sometimes I go by different names, you know, like J.J. Abrams. I throw that name out, you know, just to throw people off the track. (laughs) That's coming up next. Don't go anywhere. This is NPR. I'm Stacey Vanek Smith. I'm Cardiff Garcia. And we are here with a new show. The Indicator from Planet Money. On every show, we take some number in the news and we dive into it to find the big idea behind it. Get it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. I began listening to uh, Giving Voice to Depression podcasts uh, a couple months ago, and um, I just found them so inspiring and so inspiring, in fact, that I uh, got a hold of them and I volunteered uh, to help with the mission. Um, I suffer from depression and so does my family. Hello, and thank you for joining us on Giving Voice to Depression. I'm Bridget. And I'm Terry. More than 350 million people worldwide suffer from depression, but you do not have to have it yourself to be affected by it. Its prevalence pretty much guarantees that someone you care about battles its darkness. My name is Sarah Walters. I forgot what else you wanted me to do. But anyway, um, I just uh, uh, I just love, love listening to the podcast. They help me every single day. Thanks so much for listening to me. Bye. Hey, pals. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober. And if you're like our friend Sarah and you found a show that really helps you out on the day-to-day, you want to hear about it, give us a ring on the pod line at 202-885-POD1. And I, for one, am glad to know the podcast can help. You might know our next guest from his turn as the senior black correspondent on The Daily Show a few years ago, or from his own late-night turn, The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore. Or you might remember him from his gig hosting the 2016 White House Correspondents' Dinner. Will Smith is here from the upcoming movie Suicide Squad. Yeah. Big Will Uh By the way, not to be confused with the new Jeb Bush documentary Suicide Watch. Yeah. Groans are good. Groans are good. Larry... But none of that even scratches the surface of Larry Wilmore's body of work. Remarkably, he's had a hand in some of the most popular TV shows of the past few decades. In Living Color, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, The Bernie Mac Show, Insecure, Blackish, I Could Go On. Wilmore is obviously a busy guy, but somehow he still has time to make a podcast. It's called Black on the Air with Larry Wilmore. Here he is talking recently about tax cuts for businesses. I'm sorry, there is no meeting ever at a board of directors where they say, uh, all right, let's talk about the last quarter. How many jobs did we create? Uh, well, <laughs> well, we didn't uh, create any jobs, but we created some profit. Damn you, Johnson. We want to create jobs here, not profit. You know, that never happens, guys. Larry Wilmore, welcome to The Big Listen. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Um, yes. So, so you are obviously you're hosting this podcast, but um, I am so impressed. You have this incredible 
TV pedigree. Like you wrote for oh. In Living Color, which when I was a kid, that was one of my favorite shows ever. Wow. <laughs> but you, you know, you, I mean, I don't need to tell you your resume, but some people might not know you created the Bernie Mac show and you co created Insecure with Issa Rae and Blackish uh-huh. with Tracy Ellis Ross. And the PJs with Eddie Right, Murphy. right, yeah. right. And I'm just wondering, like, what are the shows that you're not producing? You know, are there any shows on TV not produced no. by Larry Wilmore? I have my dirty little fingers in every little thing in Hollywood. Sometimes I go by different names, <laughs> you know, like J.J. Abrams. I throw that name out, you know, just to throw people off the track. <laughs> no, you know what it is? I've just been around for a while, and I just, I, you know, I really love producing and coming up with things, and I love the creativity of it. And I made a... I really made an effort. I remember in the mid-90s talking to some friends of mine. Um, I'm, I was working on the Jamie Foxx show at the time and and talking to Jamie. And we were just, I remember having discussions back then and, and talking to Will Smith about this back in the day too, by the way. Um, Fresh Prince was a mm-hmm. show that I worked on. And about ta- just taking ownership of what we do more, you know, and being people that are creating content out there and not having to be a prisoner of what showbiz is going to offer us because we we realize we have to tell our own stories, mm-hmm. you know, and have to be involved in that. And so I remember making that conscious decision, for better or for worse, to be one of the people who's in that conversation, you know, who's trying to create things and making those decisions and that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. and and I enjoy doing it. So that's why you see my grubby little dirty fingers in a lot of different pies. <laughs> you know, um, there's a uh, there's a film professor at Howard University here in Washington named Haile Garima, and um, uh-huh. he tells his students, um, he said, look, Hollywood isn't going to be interested in your grandmother's story right. unless she's driving Miss Daisy. And I thought, like, what, a, <laughs> you know, what a brilliant, what a, what a brilliant thing to say. Basically, you just have yeah. to do it on your own. And I feel like, um, you know, your, your co-conspirator on Insecurity, Saray is a perfect example yes. of that um, with her own production company. I, I loved what she said. I can't remember Absolutely. what awards show, but, you know, like, who do you hope to win? She's like, all the black people. You know? I'm rooting for everybody black <laughs> is what she right, said. Exactly. I'm rooting and, for uh, everybody black. <laughs> yeah, Issa is amazing. And she's a prime example of, uh, I call it controlling the narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you know, you have to get in a position where you can be the one controlling the narrative. And I was speaking to uh, a college uh, group once. Um, I, I lecture sometimes that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was Let me tell you something, guys. Many people think that sometimes like racism is a factor, like in not getting stuff on or that type of thing. So, mm-hmm. But I'll be honest with you. The, uh, the color that Hollywood cares most about is green. Yeah. Okay. And if you're a person of color or a woman or many of these things, many times you're just invisible. It's not that somebody has something against you. You're just invisible. Right. You know, and it takes so much effort just to get to the starting point of visibility. Right. <laughs> like that That takes the biggest amount of effort. And, and one of the ways to cut through that is somehow finding a way to monetize what it is you're doing, attaching value to it, getting recognition. And once that happens, that many times opens the door for other stories and for other people to get through, too. But Hollywood mm-hmm. really doesn't care unless unless green is involved at some point. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, that yeah. reminds me of the chat you had um, on your show with ta Coates, uh, the author, mm-hmm. and, and you guys were talking about how during the Obama administration there was a real um, cultural interest in in black people. You know, authors, performers, intellectuals were being tapped, and ta yeah. noted this. 
Um, I had been, you know, a barely employable journalist uh, right. when Barack Obama was, was uh, <laughs> you know, uh, became president. And so, you know, Amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but it's, it's true. It's true. Yeah. And, I, and, you know, actually, I don't know if you found this for yourself, um, but I know I found, at least in the world of journalism, mm-hmm. um, that people were suddenly curious about black things yes. in a way they, they weren't before. Um, I've talked to, you know, folks, like I talked to um, Brian yeah. Jenkins about this. Right. And he felt like, you know, in the film world, you know, that there definitely was a level of curiosity. Mm-hmm. Like, it's an interesting question. Could there have been a blackish, right, yeah. without uh, a Barack Obama? You know what I mean? Like, sure. would, there, would, that, would that space have been open? And, and maybe it would. I, I don't know. Right. Um, what I do know is I wouldn't have had the opportunity. And, you know, for years you were the, you know, the Daily Show's senior black correspondent. And then, you know, you've said senior, uh, black, senior, senior, not not junior or just basic black correspondent. Like, right. Senior. black. Yes. (laughs) But that, um, you know, and you were saying that since Trump was elected, there's you know, you've referred to this time as the unblackening of America. And I wonder, first, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it has a literal meaning. Trump is literally trying to get rid of everything that Obama did. You right. know, I mean, he's literally unblacking, unblackening everything that he did. You know, mm-hmm. and we came up with this term while Trump was running. Uh-huh. And I was I was initially responding to the energy around the way he delegitimized President Obama as a man by suggesting that, you know, he wasn't born here. That was a way to delegitimize right. him in my eyes. And I didn't like that at all. It didn't sit with me well. And I didn't like the fact that the energy around that was the energy around his candidacy. Mm-hmm. And I felt that, that that was a bad racial energy around that, you mm-hmm. know. Speaking of your uh, of your podcast um, before, you know, one, t- one topic that you um, that you delved into recently um, was sexual harassment and assault. I, I really mm-hmm. loved your conversation with um, with Gretchen Carlson, the former yes. Fox News anchor. I was covering a story yeah. out in a rural part of the state of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And after we got done shooting the story, we got back into the news van for the long ride back to the station. And the cameraman started talking to me about how much I had enjoyed him touching my breasts when he uh, was putting the microphone on, and it and, went and it went from there. And how long had you known this person? Did no, I didn't know him at all? You just met him, right? I was a twenty-two-year-old novice. Right. I mean, I didn't know TV either. Right. 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 <laughs> to be honest with you, yeah. so there I was in this car. This is before cell phones, and mm-hmm. I'm wondering what the hell I do, and mm-hmm. I was scared to death. And I actually envisioned myself rolling out of the car in the passenger seat by opening wow. the door, like you see in the movies, mm-hmm. and wondering. I wonder how much that would hurt if I did that. So, and the feeling you had, um, th- this is what I wanted to talk about too, because a lot of people can't, they don't really think about what is the feeling that goes on in a woman when this type of thing happens. You felt claustrophobic in there, like your life was in danger in right. some ways, right? Completely, yeah. because I didn't know yeah. where the conversation was going from right. harassment to possible violence. Yeah. And also your whole all the self-confidence that you've built up for your mm-hmm. entire life yeah. and thinking that you're being respected for your brain and your talents, mm-hmm. it just seeps out of you at the quickest pace imaginable. Yeah. And all of your self-respect mm-hmm. and security leaves you in an instant. It's yeah. amazing how one instant like that can affect people for the rest of their lives. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, because I, I feel like I haven't, um, in, in the wake of all of this, um, all the sexual harassment and assault allegations, that I haven't talked to 
men about, you know, well, what are what are the conversations you're having with your male friends or your male colleagues? Are you having any? And I, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, I want to be a fly on the wall for those conversations. It's a great question. Um, I think I've talked to more of my female friends about it. Um, a good friend of mine is Joe Miller, who used to run Sam B show. And mm-hmm. we've had some long conversations about it. And, and Joe's like, like, I, I remember early on saying, Joe, I this is just so overwhelming. She's like, Larry, welcome to my yeah. world. You know, <laughs> this is what we see every day. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. How could I even say this? You right. Know? And she just just reminded me of how many of us men are in denial of this world. We mm-hmm. just don't. We, we're not aware of it consciously the way women are aware of it all the time. Right. It's like if you put it in racial terms, it's like when white people say black people, you, you guys are so like always talking about race all the time. Yeah, always exactly. Con- why are you always conscious about race? And I said, OK, let's do this. Let me take you to Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles. And let's just, you know, there's nothing but black people in here. And let's just sit there the whole day. And I want you to not think about the fact that you're white. I just want you to, to try to do that. <laughs> Why amazing. are there so many black people in here? <laughs> oh, why are you thinking about race all of a sudden? Larry Wilmore is the host of Black on the Air with Larry Wilmore from the Ringer Podcast Network. To find out more about his show or any of the many projects he's working on, go to biglisten.org. We've almost reached the end of this week's episode. Ugh, what? No. But before we let you go, it's time for... C-H-A-R-T-O-G-R-A-P-H-Y. Chartography is our 60-second mapping of the Apple podcast charts. But we're not looking at number one or even number 100. We're looking at number 289. And if your podcast has reached number 289, boy, howdy, that's good. Because there are infinity podcasts out there. I mean, almost. Anyway, this week's... 289. Welcome to Degrassi Voyager. Degrassi Voyager is an attempt by a woman named Amanda and a man named Andy to recap all of the Degrassi franchise TV shows. Yeah, it's kind of sitcom. So in this episode that I listened to, um, they are recapping an episode called Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Yeah. Which is, of course, named after the Cindy Lauper song. And apparently it's all about school dance. But what I learned, very important thing. Degrassi dances are cursed. Historically, they've always been cursed. Bad things happen at the dances. I don't know what bad things are. I don't know if people get pregnant by accident or, you know, they uh, drink spiked punch or, you know, like the teacher catches them making out. I don't know what happens. Marco is like break dancing. Also, one thing that I learned is that Emma. Emma is not having it. This little girl, Emma, is a B, an absolute B. Is it every 14 year old girl? And apparently, Spike is dating Mr. Simpson. They're always like kind of, sort of. There's somebody else called Snake, and there's somebody called Spinner. So there, a lot of them have nicknames. You're like an awkward polar bear. Yeah. If it isn't apparent already that I had a hard time following this, I did because I've never watched one episode of Degrassi. But um, Amanda and Andy seem to really enjoy Degrassi. Um, So if you also enjoy the Degrassi series and you would like to hear people talk about the hundreds of individual episodes. Yeah, she's like giving, she's like, she's giving shade. Then Degrassi Voyager is the show for you, eh? Because Canadian problems are not as bad as American problems. 
Want to listen to The Big Listen on the go? Well, you can. Just go to Apple Podcasts or NPR One or any fine purveyor of podcasts and hit subscribe. Then we will slip slide right into your feed every week. And gosh, won't that be fun? Yes, it will be. Also, check us out on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Here Big Listen. That's H-E-A-R, Big Listen. And uh, I've been told we're a pretty good follow. Also, our email address is biglisten at wamu.org. Love notes, encouraged and appreciated. The show today was produced by Daisy Rosario, Ponce Rutch, and Abby Holtzman. Jake Cherry mixed the show. I, Lauren Ober, was still trying to figure out my New Year's resolution. Anyone got any ideas? Because I'm out. David Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army-Navy, the band, not the store. The Big Listen is the brainchild of boss lady Andy McDaniel and her boss man, J.J. Yore, and is produced by WAMU and American University and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America. And now a few final thoughts from environmentalist Bill McKibben about the message of defiance in his new book, Radio Free Vermont, A Fable of Resistance. Here he is reading an excerpt from the author's note at the end of the novel. An advantage to writing a fable is that you get to append a moral. In this case, it's not we should all secede. Instead, it's that when confronted by small men doing big and stupid things, we need to resist with all the creativity and wit we can muster. And if we can do so without losing the civility that makes life enjoyable, then so much the better. In McKibben's book, none of his characters hurt anyone in their opposition to multinational corporations and politicians who are in bed with big business. Instead, their antics start conversations and spur people to action. That's, I think, my hope, that people will be uh, inspired to think about um, um, ways to resist that are, on the one hand, effective, and on the other hand, don't erode precisely the things that we need in order to build the kind of world we want, the kind of sense of neighborliness and community and and all of that that are really important. And if nothing else, you can always start a podcast. Thanks for hanging out, pals. Till next time, keep listening, America. This is NPR.